Okay. Uh, Pastor Tim is at Reality Boston today. He's speaking at Reality Boston. And so that's hooray for him. I'm sure it's cold out there. I'm glad that we are here. Um, And so in light of the fact that we are endeavoring by God's grace and for the glory of Jesus Christ to plant this church in London together, we thought it would be really fun to have someone from London teach us today. So we have a brother with us. He was born in Ghana and at five years of age moved to London with his family. He's now got two beautiful kids and a wife, Elena, and he moved from London to the States five years ago to attend Master's Seminary. He got his MDiv from Master's Seminary. It is very rare that anybody with any sort of credentials whatsoever stands at this pulpit. So that's, that's something. If, if nothing else, that's something. That's a big deal. <laughs> and he is now a pastoral resident at Reality LA. He's been there for several years as, as part of that. And what the pastoral residency does there is train people for a life of ministry, uh, uh, vocationally as pastors, and for church planting. He and his family are a very important part of the reality family of churches. I want you to get to know him. I'm sure we'll have more involvement with he and his family as the years go by. But listen, the word of God taught with an English accent is just cool. I don't know why. It's just awesome. So please welcome a man that I love very much, Obed. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, man. All right, guys, how you doing? You all right? You guys are so lovely. My wife and I have had the opportunity um, to spend a weekend here in Carpinteria, and it's such a lovely town, isn't it? It's so lovely. Everyone's so nice. The birds are singing all the time. Um, It's just a lovely, but what has made it extra special, and I really mean this, and I'm not just saying this because you guys are here and I'm I'm outnumbered, but it's been extra special because of you guys, because of this church. Um, Just walking in this morning and seeing all your lovely smiley faces um, has brought comfort to me. As I stand here for the first time here on a Sunday, I've not been here on a Sunday before, Um, it's um, it's crazy that I'm here first time on a Sunday and I'm preaching to you guys. It's crazy, but it's awesome. It's awesome to be here. Um, my best American accent, but I, um, <laughs> um, I'm going to resist um, going on with my introduction because the churches that I grew up in um, had a tendency to have 30-minute worth of introduction. So without further ado, um, turn to First Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24. And I'm going to be reading. It's a long passage, but it's an amazing passage. And what an amazing opportunity we have this morning to study God's Word together. Read along with me. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. 
And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it, sh- as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to these words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come? Out. After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up 
to the stronghold. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your word. Again, thank you for this opportunity to gather together as one. Not so that we can not so that we can glorify ourselves, but so that we can bring you glory by endeavoring to understand what you want to say to us this morning. Father, this is your word. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, may you bring it to life in our life in a way that impacts not only how we understand it, but how we live. And Father, at the end of all of this, may we all, with gladness and with praise, declare that Jesus is Lord of all and Jesus is the most amazing and beautiful thing ever in our lives. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the year 1502, a church in Italy hired an artist to fashion a giant piece of marble given to them into a work of art. Not long after this artist began crafting, um, he made a mistake that left a hole in the bottom of this incredible piece of marble, essentially ruining it. Assuming it was beyond repair, the church covered it up for over 20 years. And after 20 years, a certain man eventually heard about the piece and how it had been destroyed. And out of curiosity, he sought to find the stone and declared he could redeem it. After some time, he had made what was once thought lost and broken into one of the greatest statues ever made. The statue was of King David, and the artist was, of course, Michael Angelo. I've always found this story to be intriguing because in so many ways it resembles the story of King David himself. This period of David's life resembles the marble rock in Italy before Michelangelo discovered it. His life seems to be covered, lost, and broken. The previous episode from the life of David revealed to us that he was at the top of Israel's most wanted list. He was a fugitive on the run. He was public enemy number one. And this was not because he was a man convicted of felony or treason. No, he became Israel's most wanted because he was a conquering hero, loved and favored by the people, and plus he became um, Israel's most wanted because God had chosen him to be king. As a result, he has quickly become a threat to Saul, who is the current sovereign king of Israel. And on, to- uh, and on the top of his list of to-dos as king was to capture and destroy David. So David is now a wanted man. He's Israel's most wanted. In view of this, 
Here's the question that comes to mind. Here's the question that rises to the surface. If David is God's chosen king, why wouldn't the God who could stop an entire army in one single day not give David the throne quickly and easily? Why this delay? Why this extended period of difficulty? Why does David have to endure this dark season of hostility when God could easily bring it all about in a moment? And it, wouldn't be, and it wouldn't surprise me if David felt this way. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me if David often in this season, in this difficult season of his life, would often cry out to God with these words, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Like David, we all at some points in our lives have asked the same questions. How long, O oh Lord? Why can't life be easy? Why is turbulence a part of everyone's journey? Why the delays? Why the difficulties? When our good and gracious God can easily deliver us, why can't life be plain sailing? My family and I are in this difficult season at the moment, and it all has to do with us trying to get an American visa. <laughs> and the process is just taking longer than expected, and it's bringing about a lot of anxiety, a lot of sleepless nights, and it's just killing us. It's so hard at the moment. So much uncertainty in our lives. And I don't have all the answers. I don't know when, we'll, when all of this will end. But what I do know is that God is our Father and he, and he hears us and cares and will eventually work all things out for our good and his glory. And what I also know is that I am extremely impatient. <laughs> and I'm sure I'm not the only one who struggles with impatience in this room. I'm sure I'm not. And because of this, because of our impatience, when we face delays and difficulties, our natural instinct is to do whatever it takes to remove all obstacles as quickly as possible. And we're often surrounded by well-meaning friends who say things that fuel this instinct within us, this instinct to do all in our power to remove obstacles as quickly as possible. They say things like, you're an amazing godly woman. How comes you're not married yet? I am shocked by the fact that you're not married yet. They say things like, man, you're both solid parents. How comes your children aren't saved yet? I was surprised they weren't saved as soon as they came out of your womb. <laughs> if God's ultimate purpose involves peace, 
If his ultimate purpose involves joy and no more tears, then why is the journey there so hard? Why doesn't God remove all obstacles and difficulties and make our lives easy? This is why. Because it is in the dark caves of life that some of the most transformative moments take place. These caves are blessings in disguise. It is where God does some of his best work in us. We want everything to be quick and easy, but God is not in the business of catering for our convenience. He is concerned with something far more important than convenience. Our great and gracious God is concerned about crafting our character. Like David in this period of his life, you may face difficulty, you may feel forgotten and left behind, but I am here to remind you that God has not forgotten you. He is at work, he is a good God, he hears, he cares, and he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. On this occasion, here in 1 Samuel 24, David has at his fingertips the opportunity to take matters into his own hands and usher in the easy life. But the decision he makes is unexpected, and the decision he makes consists of powerful lessons we can learn and apply, but the most important and fundamental truth we can learn from David's decisions and actions is that they were spirit-empowered. And the author who composed the story intends for us to see this vivid contrast between Saul and David because Saul represents a life without the Spirit, but David represents a life with the Spirit. This morning, we're going to use the life of David to help us discover how the Holy Spirit crafts our character. How does God, by his Spirit, craft your character when you face difficulties in life? There are five ways, and the first is that the Spirit enables you to discern God's will. The Spirit enables you to discern God's will. Saul has been in hot pursuit of David for a while now. He is armed with 3,000 men. And what I want you guys to see is that these 3,000 men weren't idle men in Israel, walking the streets of Israel with nothing to do. And Saul was like, hey, mate, do you want to come and join my army that goes after David? No, it was not that. It tells us that these men were chosen men, men he has specifically chosen and trained for this mission, men handpicked for the purpose of capturing and destroying David. So after many hours of trekking through valleys and hiking up hills and mountains, searching for David, Saul and his army arrive at a cave that presents to them an occasion for rest and refreshment. What we do know is that Saul enters the cave alone and enters it in order to attend to his needs, to relieve himself. We're not certain exactly what he did, but I'm sure after a long day in the wild chasing an enemy, let's assume that he used the restroom, 
and after using the restroom, he probably took a nap. Now, this is what's interesting. Saul does this carelessly. It seems he overlooked the protocol that involves sending men into the cave to search it to make sure that it was safe. His carelessness could cost him his life. Because at this point, Saul unknowingly falls into David's hands. Because David and his men were already situated in the innermost parts of the cave. Possibly resting and possibly hiding from Saul himself. Saul is unaware of this. He's totally oblivious to the fact that he has just placed himself completely at David's mercy. Now, David has the opportunity, like we often do, to easily rid himself of an enemy and all the heartache related to it. Think about it. If David would have taken this opportunity and hacked Saul to death, he would no longer be a fugitive on the run, constantly fearing for his life, but he would instantly become king and all this fear and anxiety will be eradicated from his life. And if he killed Saul, it wouldn't be at the expense of a good king. It wouldn't. Saul was a bad king, but it would be at the expense of a bad king who in God's eyes is no longer fit to reign anyway. So David has at his fingertips the opportunity to speed up the process to bring about what God has already promised Now, David was not alone in the cave. His men were with him. What did they think? What advice did they give to David? Look at what they say in the first part of verse 4. It says, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, David, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. They saw this as the hand of God. They saw this incident as a way in which God was finally providing deliverance, relief from the many months on the run. So what did they do? They did, they did all they could to persuade David to end Saul's life immediately. Now, this opportunity favors David. His friends are in full agreement. What would you do in this situation? How would you respond? How did David respond? It seems that this all made sense to him. It seems that his men had persuaded him because what he does next, it seems, is that he quietly arms himself with his sword and discreetly makes his way to Saul in order to kill him. But at the last moment, just when he was about to put Saul to death, he stops and doesn't strike Saul with his sword. But instead, it says in the last part of verse 4, he stealthily snip it 
cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. This was unexpected, right? David then returns to his men. They were expecting his sword to be covered in blood, but it was not. Instead, he was carrying snippet from Saul's royal robe. So they ask him. I can imagine this. They're like, David, what's going on? Your sword hasn't got blood on it. What did you do? What didn't you do? Why are you carrying a piece of Saul's royal robe? David, what happened? You didn't do it. Why? Verse 6 tells us why. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David's response to his men is profound, and this is what it teaches us. What may seem totally justified in the eyes of others may not be justified in the eyes of God. David knew it would be wrong to take Saul's life because if God had allowed Saul to reign, then God would be the one to remove him from the throne. In other words, despite the promise from God that David would be king, despite peer pressure from his men and the convenience of the circumstance, David refused to try to bring about God's will in his own way. He refused to believe that the circumstance was an indication of God's will. We may have a good goal in mind, perhaps a sense that God has promised something to us, yet we often think that we are justified in sinning in order to bring it about. This is always wrong. It is wrong to try and bring about a good thing in the wrong way. How? Are you trying to bring about God's will in your own way? How? God's will is that you are saved through faith in Christ alone. How are you trying to achieve salvation in your own ways? Perhaps it's through regular church attendance, regular reading of the word, prayer, or giving financially, or serving in the church? Are you trying to achieve salvation through good works? Because if you are, you are trying to achieve a good thing in the wrong way. God's will is that us men work hard in order to provide for our families. How are we trying to achieve the good thing in the wrong way? Perhaps it's by neglecting our families. And I struggle with this being in ministry. I have such a tendency to neglect my family by achieving ministerial goals. When quality time with our family becomes non-existent because you're consumed with work, we're probably trying to achieve a good thing in the wrong way. How are you trying to bring about God's will in your life in the wrong way? 
Like David, we must resist this temptation to try and fulfill God's purposes through disobedience. This is why you and I should be thankful for the Holy Spirit because he enables us to not only discern what God's will is, but he also enables us to discern the way in which his will is supposed to be accomplished. And this is the first way God crafts our character. His spirit enables us to discern his will and his ways. The second way in which God's spirit crafts our character in difficult seasons is that he creates in us a tender heart. He creates in us a tender heart. And when he does, our hearts are often troubled by every single act of sin. No matter how small it is, our hearts are troubled by every single act of sin we're responsible for. After David's encounter with Saul, we're told in verse 5 that his heart struck him. His heart was troubled. David felt guilty, not because he had killed Saul. No, he didn't. But because he had sliced off a piece of Saul's royal robe. This is why his heart struck him. Now, why was this a big deal? I mean, I'm sure the royal robe was amazing. And it was handcrafted. Why was it a big deal that David chopped off a corner of his royal robe? Why did he feel guilty about it? This is because the robe was a symbol of Saul's royal authority. And David felt bad that he had done anything against Saul's God-appointed authority. But the most important thing we can learn from how David felt is the incredible work of God's Spirit he's doing in his heart. God's Spirit gives us a sensitivity to his voice and to his ways. And God's spirit is amazing. I look back at my, in my life and I'm starting to feel bad about some of the things I didn't feel bad about before. Right? And this is evidence of God's spirit tenderizing our hearts. And the tender heart, as it's sensitive to him, is a mark of true character. Like David, our hearts will be troubled when our motives are impure, when we seek to bring about God's will in our own ways. Although the spirit had departed from Saul and he was a corrupt leader, David ought not to take the throne by force. But God speaks to his heart and he responds because the spirit has given him a heart, a heart that is tender and sensitive to his voice and to his leading. Is your heart tender? Are you sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit? If you are, you will be troubled, not by the obvious big sins, right? But you will be troubled by every motive, thought, word, and action that is classified as sin before our holy God. This is the second way God crafts your character. When you're planted in the throes of difficulty, he creates in you a tender heart. The third way in which God crafts your character is that uh, the spirit restrains your flesh. The spirit restrains your flesh. 
The flesh is the word the Bible uses to explain our sinful nature. It's the natural tendency within to live lives outside of God's will and plans for us. David was angered and frustrated that Saul would pursue him and seek to kill him. And David's anger towards Saul seems justified because Saul had made his life a living hell. Letting Saul live for another day seemed insane. David's men were probably dumbfounded, if not angered by his decision. They were like, David, what is wrong with you? You had an opportunity to end all this misery we're going through, and you came back with a piece of his robe as what? As a memorabilia? As a piece of merchandise? Why, David? What's wrong with you? But despite their initial shock and dissatisfaction towards David's decision, they were eventually persuaded not to attack Saul. Verse 7 informs us. What we learn from this is that the Spirit's work of restraint does not end with an individual But often it spreads to a community. In other words, the Spirit did not only restrain David, but he empowered David to persuade and restrain his friends. But in the midst of temptation, even when we're on the verge of acting out the desires of the flesh, God's Spirit often empowers us to resist. He restrains us. Now, There are many things I'm thankful for, all right? Many things I'm thankful for, and I'm sure you guys feel the same. I'm thankful for my wife. She's going to be here at the second service. She is lovely. I call her my darling. I've got two beautiful kids. They are incredible. So thankful for them. I'm thankful for Mexican food. Where I'm from in England, Mexican food is not as big. We don't even have Mexican. I don't even know. I just, we have other things that are great, but I love Mexican food. Love the internet. I love the plane, right? Aeroplane to go from places to places. I love cars. Now living in Los Angeles, right? I am so thankful for air conditioning. Aren't you? (laughs) Thankful for air conditioning. But one thing, on this planet, that I am extremely thankful for, and I'm sure you guys would never guess what it was, is that I am thankful for the dog leash. (laughs) Right? You weren't expecting that, was you? (laughs) And this is precisely because, you guessed it, I am scared stiff of dogs. Oh my goodness, I have an extreme dog phobia. Every dog I see, I think I'm the enemy and and their appetizer, right? I'm too slim to be an entree. I'm an appetizer. And that's why I'm very, 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 very thankful for the dog leech because its purpose is to restrain dogs from fulfilling the many sinful desires they're consumed by. In the same way a leash restrains a dog, the Holy Spirit restrains us and prevents us from fulfilling our sinful desires. 
The Bible speaks often of the restraining work of the Spirit. You may have the perfect opportunity to rebel against God and do things your way, and you don't do it, and you cannot do it. Why? Because the restraining work of the Holy Spirit is supernatural, and guess what? It's for our own benefit, because if it were not for the restraining power of God's Spirit in David's life, Saul would be lying in a part of his own blood, David or one of his men would be guilty of murder, but most, um, uh, most, most crazily, if that's a word, right, they'll be bringing about God's will through disobedience. If it were not for the restraining power of God's spirit in our lives, we would probably be experiencing the consequences and the guilt and shame and remorse of our sinful actions. Praise God for his Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has helped and continues to help us restrain our fallen impulses. When David made his choice not to do what he initially set out to do. He was saying, I don't want to turn into the very thing that has turned on me. See, in not cutting Saul, God was cutting the soul out of David. Do you realize today that there are things within you that must be restrained? Sadly, this is true in my life. Some of you here might be fighting the restraining work of the Spirit in your life. You desire to do something that you know is not in line with God's will and plan for you. You might say, I know it's wrong, but I just can't. I'm defeated. I just keep doing it. But I'm here to encourage you and remind you that by God's Spirit, you can. You can overcome. Don't fight the restraining work of the Spirit. Yield to it. Trust me, you will look back and be glad. In our trying season, God is at work. God is at work, even in our trying season. His Spirit not only restrains our flesh, He compels us to take right actions. The life of the Spirit is not only about what we avoid, but also what we pursue. The Spirit not only enables you to discern God's will, creates in you a tender heart and restrains your, your fleshly tendencies. The fourth way God crafts your character by the Spirit is that He produces right actions in your life. He produces right actions in your life. The Spirit of God works on your will, and when He does, your convictions moves you to action. So far in this story, Saul has just escaped death because David is moved by the Spirit to act in a way that is contrary to popular opinion and to his own initial desires. So after, so after attending to his needs... Saul exits the cave, and not long after he exits the cave, we are told in verse 8 
that David and his men also exit the cave not long after. And as Saul and his army get about a stone's throw away from the cave, they suddenly hear the following shout from the cave, My Lord, the King! So Saul turns and witnesses a man in the distance near the mouth of the cave bowed down with his face on the ground, paying homage to him. And one thing I want you to notice before we carry on with our story is that David's actions are risky, highly risky, very, very dangerous because he has just exposed himself to the man who has assembled an entire army with the express purpose of capturing and destroying him. Because if Saul decides to attack, there is no way David will escape 3,000 men handpicked and trained and armed specifically to capture and destroy him. This is a hard risk. It's as risky as you running in a den of lions and locking the door behind you. It's as risky as walking down a gangster infested alley late at night. This is very risky for David and his men. But he is compelled to do so, not for the adrenaline rush, but in order to make an appeal to Saul. And here is what I want you to see. Though the work of God's spirit begins with conviction and restraint, it doesn't end there. It always turns into behavior. It's not enough for us to just admit the convicting work of the spirit in our lives. The spirit's work should move us from conviction to action. The Holy Spirit convicts us, leads us, and empowers us to obey the truth. We must learn to act upon the leading of God's spirit in our lives. The spirit always does his job. But the million dollar question is, will you respond? Three weeks ago, I took my neighbor's flower pot. At that time, I thought I was borrowing it. But now I've realized I had stole it because I had not asked my neighbor I could use it. What did I want to use it for? I wanted to use it as a stand for my barbecue, right? <laughs> the legs on one of my, my barbecues had broken, right? And I just wanted something to put barbecue on that would be stable. And I thought a flower pot. And I saw my neighbor had the same size flower pot that I needed. So I went and knocked on their door. They weren't in. So I thought, you know what? They're my neighbor. They don't know me. But I can just use... <laughs> but I can just use their flower pot quickly. Just use it quickly and just put it back and nothing's going to happen. So I have my barbecue. It's delicious. And after the barbecue, to my horror, I realized that the rim of the flower pot had turned black. It had burnt. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? So I called my wife and I said, let's just take the flower pot back and put it where we found it and not tell them anything. 
And so I thought, my wife, oh my gosh, my wife and I carried it over. And I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to even knock on their door and admit it was me that did it. But a few days later, I was just haunted by flower pots. Everywhere <laughs> I went, I saw a flower pot. And everywhere I went and I saw a flower pot, God was like, go and confess your sins. Go and confess your sins. It took a while, but I eventually knocked on their door with some money in my hand the other day, but they weren't in. (laughs) So you guys can keep me accountable. I'm planning on doing it when I get back to Los Angeles. (laughs) Took a while for me to take action. It has been said that a great measure of our nearness to God is the length of time between conviction and repentance. David was struck to his heart. And then what does he do? He reacts. He's not only restrained from an awful decision, he takes steps in the right direction. The Spirit does not only prevent us from doing what we shouldn't do, he compels us to do what we should do. My question to you is, right now, what is God through his Spirit asking you to do? What is it? He's going to reveal it to you. Maybe you need to take steps towards making peace with someone you know. Maybe you need to confess sin. Maybe you need to ask someone for forgiveness. Maybe you need to stop trying to gain God's love through works and accept his love freely given to you in Christ. Maybe you need to respond to the Holy Spirit by giving generously, seeking reconciliation. May God's spirit reveal it. And when he does, I pray that he empowers you to take action. If you're filled with the spirit, conviction will turn to action. Pray that God moves into your heart, in your heart today. Do not delay. The spirit not only crafts your character by enabling you to discern God's will, by creating in you a tender heart, by restraining your fleshly desires and producing right actions in your life. Lastly, in the difficult seasons of life, even in the difficult seasons of life, God's Spirit crafts your character by transforming your affections. By transforming your affections. And when he does, you begin to care more about God's purposes than people's opinions. David was pressed by his men to take Saul's life, but he resists. He then moved to take action by coming out of the cave in order to expose himself to his enemy. He calls out to Saul, and as soon as he has his attention, he speaks these words that reveal to us that his affections towards Saul have changed. He says in verses 10 and 11, Behold, this is what he's telling Saul. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, 
you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. Notice his affections have changed. He was on the brink of taking Saul's life. He was on the brink of revenge. But now David is expressing respect and love towards him. David did not only appeal to his honor, but to his affections. And this is clear because he even calls Saul father. That's crazy. This is a guy that's trying to kill you and he has 3,000 men. You have a chance to take his life, but you don't. And you expose yourself to him and you call him father. He called him father because David had married Saul's daughter. So Saul was David's father-in-law. And David here is saying that he is doing all he can to bring an end to this family feud. Because it is in family that we have the most conflicts, don't we? It is with family members that we struggle to make peace and bring about reconciliation. David's desire has changed. He desires reconciliation. Where did this come from? Why did he take such a great risk? Let me remind you that in this encounter with Saul, David is outnumbered, outgunned, and outmatched. And yet he risks everything. And he risks everything in order to see a broken man saved. And the only way this bloodthirsty enemy was going to change and be saved was if he was made aware of the mercy that has just been shown to him. And this is exactly why David steps out of the cave and unveils to Saul an extract from his royal robe. In doing this, David was saying to Saul, Hey Saul, look, look, I could have killed you. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof of this. But I didn't because I was impacted and I was shown mercy. And because I was shown mercy, I wanted to extend mercy to you as well. Mercy is such a powerful virtue. Its power knows no end. Mercy is powerful enough to soften the heart of the most ruthless of individuals. And Saul, after being made aware of the mercy shown to him by David, is impacted by this in a way that is totally unexpected. Listen to his response in verses 16 to 17. He says, it says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son? My goodness, he's referring to David as his son. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. What an impact mercy makes on an individual. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. A knife to the throat did not draw out this warm confession from Saul. No, it wasn't that. 
But this confession came as a result of a word and act of mercy. This is what brought this moving moment into Saul's life. When an enemy sees mercy, when you are merciful to someone who hates you, it can have a life-changing effect on their lives. If you have been shown mercy by someone, I am sure it has had a life-changing effect on your life. David's ultimate motivation for this unexpected mercy was that he knew that he too was a broken man in need of mercy. If you feel as though you are above others, you won't extend mercy. We need mercy. All of us need mercy. So how does this come about for us? How does the Spirit reshape our affections? Just as David appeals to the piece of Saul's robe as a symbol of mercy, the proof of mercy is shown to us in David's greater son, Jesus the Christ. The cross is the evidence of grace and mercy that brings healing to our souls in awareness of our brokenness. We say to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. By seeing the mercy and grace shown to us by the son of David, Jesus Christ, this moves us beyond people's opinions. It humbles us, but it also emboldens us to risk love. Why? Because we understand that if God can change us, then God can change anyone. If you are here and you are a believer, you are a recipient of God's everlasting mercy. You were God's enemy. You were rebelling against him, but he had mercy on you by sending his one and only son to die on your behalf and conquer death by resurrecting on the third day. And in Christ, in Christ God has not given you what you deserve. That is eternal damnation and punishment. But in Christ, God has given you what you don't deserve. And that is eternal life and grace and mercy that is showered on you. From now on, if you are a believer, all you will ever know is grace. We may be in the dark caves of difficulties, yet within we are being shaped by mercy and grace that we might be lights. For it is in the most difficult places and to the most difficult people that displays of love are most powerful. When Saul saw mercy from David, he said to David in verse 20, Now I know that you are truly the king. In the same way, when we look at the mercy of Jesus shown to us on Calvary, we also say, Yes, you really are king. Have you said that? Is Jesus the king of your life? To have Jesus as king's king means yielding to his spirit. This does not make following Christ easy, but makes following Christ worth it. One day he will bring an end to evil. Injustice, he will deliver us out of caves into kingdoms. But until that day, he is turning you into a light that shines in the darkness. And it is most bright when you choose to love as, your, as you yourself have been loved. It may be a long and difficult journey, but God is crafting you, shaping you into something glorious. 
Will you invite him to do so? Will you allow him to do so? Do not resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, help us see and understand and experience the grace and mercy shown to us in your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.